A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. There are two big differences when you compare the global death tolls from the First and Second World Wars. First, the raw numbers. A lot more people were killed in World War II. Estimates range between 70 and 85 million. The second difference is who was being killed. In the First World War, most of the people who died were soldiers. But in the Second World War, most of the deaths were civilians, killed either deliberately or as collateral damage in strategic bombings. In this war, we see the Rape of Man King, the Blitz in London, the Nightmare of Stalingrad, firestorms in Dresden and Tokyo, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and, of course, the indescribable horror of the Holocaust. Our corner of the globe escaped the worst of the conflict, but our people still paid an enormous price. Aotearoa's soldiers, sailors and airmen suffered the highest casualty rate of any Commonwealth country other than the United Kingdom. I'm William Ray. I'm Lee Madame McLaughlin. This is the Aotearoa History Show. We arrange ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. New Zealand troops in the Second World War had very different backgrounds to the Anzacs. Many of Aotearoa's fighting age men had relatives who'd fought in the First World War, so they had a good idea of just how badly war could affect people. But there was still a strong patriotic desire to fight alongside Britain. Michael Joseph Savage gave this speech just after war was declared. Both with gratitude for the past and with confidence in the future, we range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. We are only a small and young nation, but we are one and all a band of brothers. Ten days after that speech, the government put out a call for volunteers. It was hoping that about 6,600 men would sign up, the actual number was nearly 12,000. Yeah, like, 
Just like in the First World War, many Māori and Pacific Island men enlisted. Apira Nangata thought the reason that Pākehā politicians hadn't valued Māori participation in the First World War was because Māori had been prevented from fighting on the front lines when that war started. Ngata was determined that this time would be different. He pushed for the formation of a special Māori unit, the 28th Māori Battalion. Ngata encouraged Māori men to sign up to this unit, describing fighting in the war as the price of citizenship. Its troops were organised according to tribal affiliations. At first, they were led by Pākehā, but as the war went on, there were increasing numbers of Māori officers. The 28th Māori Battalion became one of the most famous fighting units of the entire conflict. It had a fearsome reputation, both among allies and enemies. According to some sources, the German general Siegfried Westphal once said, Give me the Māori Battalion and I will conquer the world. But the price for that fame was very high. The Māori Battalion's casualty rate was 50% higher than the average infantry battalion. Between 1939 and 1945, 194,000 men and 10,000 women served in New Zealand's armed forces at home and overseas. In fact, some Kiwis were so keen to fight fascism that they went to serve overseas several years before the Second World War officially started. In the mid-1930s, a handful of New Zealanders volunteered for the Spanish Civil War, defying the government's decision to keep out of the conflict. Four of them were killed in the battle with General Franco's nationalists. They were the first of nearly 12,000 Kiwis to die fighting the forces of fascism. New Zealanders fought in many different theatres in World War II. Our pilots fought in the skies in the Battle of Britain. Our sailors fought in the war's first naval battle. And later on, those sailors helped protect the Atlantic trade routes, which kept supplies flowing to the UK. Our first major engagement was in Greece. Several thousand New Zealand troops were deployed to Greece in April 1940 to help bolster the Greek army against an Italian and German invasion. But when that invasion came, it quickly overwhelmed the Allies. During the German advance in April 1941, 300 New Zealanders were killed and 1,800 captured. Many of the survivors retreated to the island of Crete. On May 20th, 1941, 7,700 of our troops were in Crete. They were waiting to be evacuated to Egypt. And they were busy eating breakfast when they heard something. The men rushed outside and looked up. Hundreds of German transport aircraft carrying thousands of elite paratroopers appeared in the skies. It was one of the first ever major assaults using airborne infantry. For 12 days, New Zealand, British, Australian and Greek troops fought under the command of Major General Bernard Freiburg, the head of New Zealand's 2nd Division. The initial attack was mostly defeated. Hundreds of German paratroopers were shot dead before they even reached the ground. But the Germans kept coming. And some critical mistakes by the Allies' senior officers allowed them to capture an airfield and bring in reinforcements. The Allies were pushed back. By the sixth day, Major General Freiburg ordered a full retreat and started evacuating the island. 
by the 12th day, it was all over. Six and a half thousand Allied troops surrendered to the Germans, 2,000 Kiwi soldiers were captured, and nearly 700 were killed. But their defence had been very effective. About 6,000 German paratroopers were killed or wounded. Hitler was so shocked by the losses that he forbade any more large airborne invasions for the rest of the war. But it was still a defeat for the Allies, and it was about to be followed by more heavy fighting. The Kiwi soldiers who survived Crete were drawn into the fight for North Africa. Again, they suffered heavy losses. Another 2,000 of our troops were captured and sent to prison camps. By the end of 1941, the situation looked grim. The Allies had managed to beat the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain, but mainland Europe was completely dominated by the fascist powers. About 6,000 New Zealanders had been made prisoners of war. And back home, in those tough early years of fighting, New Zealand had lost hugely popular Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out to pay their respects as his body was taken from Wellington to his final resting place at Bastion Point in Auckland. Savage was succeeded as Prime Minister by Peter Fraser, who led the country for the next nine and a half years. A passionate reformer in health, education and social welfare, Fraser was a pragmatic politician with a huge work ethic. After the war, he'd play a leading role in the creation of the United Nations and earn admiration on the world stage for himself personally and for the country. During the war, though, Fraser was forced to introduce conscription to keep up our contribution to the battlefields in Europe, Africa and the Pacific, which was a bit ironic given he himself had been jailed for opposing conscription during the First World War. Peter Fraser's personal experience might be partly why his government had a relatively lenient approach to the men who refused to serve compared to the First World War. Still, social stigma remained strong and reached beyond conscientious objectors to men who didn't fight but worked in reserved occupations. That's kind of unfortunate because Kiwi farmers and other workers on the home front played a vital role in keeping Britain and its armed forces fed and supplying stuff like leather and wool. As the war went on, the government took a more active role in directly managing the economy. It passed so-called manpower regulations, which forced people to work where the government wanted them. It was called manpower, but these laws were quickly expanded to include women. By the end of the conflict, 38,000 women were in paid work. They were making ammo and uniforms in factories, working on farms and in freezing works. A lot of Māori men and women were also swept up by manpowering. For many, it was their first experience of New Zealand's Pākehā-dominated cities. Other women served directly in the armed forces. About 650 nurses were sent overseas, and about 10,000 women served as auxiliaries in the Air Force, Army and Navy. They were drivers, cooks, mechanics, all sorts of jobs, and their officers held ranks equivalent to the men. Different women had understandably different feelings about their experience of war. Some women forced into work were frustrated by the long hours and low pay of factory work or the isolation of working in rural areas. Others found the experience exhilarating, particularly women who served overseas. Barbara Brooks puts it like this in her book, A History of New Zealand Women. War service helped create a new mould of womanhood, independent and capable of any task or position of responsibility put before them. From packing parachutes to leading a women's branch of the armed services, women discovered they were well able to do jobs previously denied to them. 
This movement towards women's independence and empowerment had started long before the Second World War, but it was starting to accelerate. In 1943, the voters of Christchurch East elected Mabel Howard, New Zealand's fifth female MP, who went on to become our first ever woman cabinet minister. In her maiden speech to Parliament, she said this. The men of this country and of every other country have yet to realise that the whole outlook of women has changed and they're no longer going to be the servile creatures they have been. And Howard was right about that, but we'll save that story for another episode. On December 7th, 1941, the war took a radical turn. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The Japanese Empire launched a series of coordinated surprise attacks, including the bombing of Pearl Harbor, joining Germany and Italy as an Axis power. Within a few months, Japan had seized an enormous chunk of the Western Pacific. Japanese soldiers were trying to push through Papua New Guinea, and bombers were launching raids on Darwin and Australia. Now the war seemed to be right on New Zealand's doorstep. Many Kiwis were freaked out by the apparent threat of a Japanese invasion. You can still see bunkers we built along the coast to fight off the Japanese Navy. But the reality was that the Japanese were massively overextended in the Pacific already. They never even tried to invade Aotearoa. But we did face an invasion of a different kind. In 1942, New Zealand was inundated by thousands of troops from the United States of America. Aotearoa was a vital staging point for the USA in the Pacific War. A hundred thousand troops ended up passing through New Zealand over the next two years. For many Kiwi women, the sudden invasion of young, fit, well-paid men in uniform was, you know, pretty sweet. But other New Zealanders were uneasy about local women having relationships with American servicemen, particularly if those women had previously been in relationships with New Zealand soldiers who were serving overseas. Some Kiwis adopted a saying which was popular in Britain to complain about American soldiers. Overpaid, oversexed and over here. But most New Zealanders were fond of the Americans. Their move to join the war was seen as the beginning of the end of the Second World War. Although... To be honest, Nazi Germany was probably already doomed thanks to Hitler's decision to invade Soviet Russia, which stretched his armies thin on two fronts. There were still years of hard fighting ahead. New Zealand troops fought to push the Germans out of North Africa. Then they took part in a brutal campaign for control of Italy. The battle for Casino alone killed 343 New Zealanders and left more than 600 wounded. Closer to home, Kiwi soldiers took part in the Pacific War. New Zealand's 3rd Division helped to liberate Guadalcanal and Mono Island, and New Zealand warships and Air Force squadrons also fought in the Pacific. 
a prison camp was opened in Featherston to hold about 800 Japanese soldiers captured in the Pacific. And in 1943, 48 of those prisoners were killed in a riot at that camp, along with one guard. The deaths were hushed up by military censors in case it triggered retaliation against our own POWs. Kiwi airmen and seamen were there on D-Day as the Allies launched their invasion to reclaim Western Europe from Nazi Germany. And as the Allied troops pushed through Europe, they came across evidence of the Nazis' greatest crimes. A New Zealander called Paddy Costello led a military mission to Poland, and he was one of the first Westerners to see inside of a concentration camp and speak to survivors. Those camps were just a small part of Nazi Germany's massive extermination program, targeting people it considered undesirable. That included homosexuals, disabled people, trade unionists, Roma, and, infamously, Jewish people. Jews have been a significant part of New Zealand's community ever since colonisation began. Mm, remember Julius Vogel? He was Jewish, and he served as premier twice. But our government blocked Jews who were fleeing the Nazis from settling in Aotearoa. We set strict rules around refugee resettlement, which were far too tough for most people to meet. Why? Well, here's a quote from New Zealand's finance minister and future prime minister, Walter Nash, talking about Jewish refugees in 1936. There was a major difficulty of absorbing these people in our cultural life without raising a feeling of antipathy to them. Basically, he was talking about anti-Semitism. Many politicians with the power to change New Zealand's refugee policies were either anti-Semitic themselves or they were afraid of a backlash from anti-Semitic voters. As a consequence, only about 1,100 Jewish refugees made it to New Zealand. That's a low number by world standards. One was Gertie Gilbert, a 16-year-old girl from Czechoslovakia. Here's what she said about her family's efforts to come to Aotearoa. It was my mother who was determined to get us out. The sooner the better, she said. New Zealand was one of the prized places to go to, but it was incredibly difficult to get in. New Zealand didn't want us, nor did anyone else really. Gertie was lucky. She made it to New Zealand in 1939. But her parents were not. They were both denied entry to Aotearoa and ended up in concentration camps where they both died. The war in Europe finally ended on May 9th, 1945. But when the news broke in New Zealand that Germany had surrendered, the government banned public celebrations. They told everyone to wait until Winston Churchill officially announced the surrender the next day. The New Zealand Herald reported it like this. The feeling of victory was in the air, but no one was inclined to let off steam without official authorisation. But a few months later, when Japan surrendered, it was a different story. Here's how a guy called Jim Blundell described the scene in Auckland. Well, the whole city went went bloody mad. Mm. And the following morning, it was reputed that they swept up five tonne mm. of broken bottles. Mm. And they, they went nuts. They were rooting in the bloody house bar. They were mm. rooting in the... You know. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was on. Yeah. It was on. Next episode, we're going to tell you about the result of all that rooting... 
the baby boomers. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.